0: I got my eyes out. So anyway, well good, thanks. We started a couple of weeks ago talking about a place that I was able to visit, not in Jerusalem I guess, but underneath Jerusalem, uh, called Solomon's Quarry. Uh, this is this uh, rather huge cavern. It's uh, 600 feet from the opening to the very back of it, about 300 feet cro- across in some places, 30, 40 feet tall. You can see that it's uh, just this monstrous place. And what they did there is they cut out limestone. Uh, they, were, they cut out these huge chunks of limestone, and that's what they used to build the temple. The, the temple, this is what's still remaining of it from Jesus' day. But that limestone that you see here in these pictures probably came from Solomon's quarry. And just, again, this is a model of it, of, of what the temple looked like. The majority of that is, is limestone and, something, and, and so on. But uh, there are some other marbles and some other stone in there as well, granite as well. But when we were down at this place, uh, George DeYoung, the guy who led our trip, uh, challenged us to think about and to recognize that stone cutting is an art. Sometimes we think of those kind of trades and we say, well, yeah, it's not that hard or whatever. But if you are a Mason, if you have ever, obviously I doubt probably any of us here have ever tried to cut stone out of, uh, out of a quarry like this, but it really is an art. And, and what George said is that the, the people who do this need to know three things. They first of all need to know just kind of what they're building. They need to have a picture of what's going on and what they're contributing to so they know the larger project. They also need to know the stone. We talked about that last week, how they need to know what the stone is like, that each stone is a, a characteristic. Each stone has its own qualities and so on. And, and, and so each one, you have to kind of look at it, and they, they read the stone, and that makes a difference of what they cut. And then third, they said we said, uh, George said that we need to know where, where the stone is going to go. You know, is it a place where we need to cut off this because it's going to be in an arch? Is it going to be a base? Is it going to be, where is it going to go? Because, yeah, the stone has its own characteristics, but it can also adapt to the situation, and it can also be placed in that situation. The reason I gave you that image of cutting stones and of of thinking about where they fit and so on is because we've been doing some praying and thinking, and we're going to really just start this now. We're going to continue to do it of saying, you know, God, what do you want us to do as a church? What do you want us to be? What are the next steps? Where are you calling us to go? You know, we've purchased this property. We've got some things going on. We're saying, God, what is it? Where do you want us to be? How do you want us to live? And we said, you know what? Finding our place in God's plan is an art. And and as I heard George talking about stone cutting, I thought that's very similar because, and we did this the first week, we said, we need to know what God is doing. If we're going to be a part of God's plan and not just have our plan, we need to know what God is doing. And we said that God is making all things new. That is restoring all of creation. We said it's saving souls. Oh, all the kids are already back in? Oh, they're all out. Okay, well, can you let me know again when they're, they're, they're going to come back in, right? Okay. <laughs> so the kids are out, they're all safe, and then they'll come back in. All right. Um, so God is making all things new, and, and, and He's doing that in a big way. We need to think about that big. Then last week, we, we, we talked about the fact that we need to know who we are. That each and every one of us is individuals. In us as a church, we have characteristics. We have qualities. and, And God has given us gifts. And we are unlike anybody else. We said that we are living stones, not bricks. Bricks are all the same. Stones are unique. We are living stones who are being used by God. All right? Individually, in us as a church. Hillside is unlike any other church. Every church has its own little DNA. Every church has its own characteristics. And so part of what we want to be praying about is saying, God, who are we? What have you gifted us to do? What are our abilities? What, what strengths do we have? Where do we fit? And, and then the third thing, and then we're going to look at today, and I'm going to actually add a fourth, but that'll be next week. But we need to know where God has placed us, okay? We need to look at the community around us. We need to know where we are in that building and say, okay, given who we are, where do we fit? How do we serve? What is God calling us to do in this place? So that's the question we're going to look at today. Where are we? What's around us? What is our community like? And I want you to think about that as we've done throughout this series. First of all, as individuals, okay? First of all, as individuals, in your neighborhoods, as we think about these things, think about it. Where, is, where are you in your neighborhood? Who are your neighbors? What are they like? What questions are they asking? But then also us as a church. You know, here we are, okay, where are, we're in southern Kent County, Many of us are from Kent County, some from Allegan County. I don't know if people come from any further than that. But we're in this area, we're south of Grand Rapids. What does that mean? What are the people like? Where are we? I want to do two things. I want to think about some of those things toward the end. But I want to start by just kind of establishing that the Bible says it really matters. The Bible makes clear that where we are matters. The reason I want to focus on this and the reason I mention that is, is because I think many of us face a temptation Many of us face a a temptation to kind of say, well, God never changes, and that's true. And God's word never changes, and that's true. God's message never changes, and that's true. Well, therefore, we don't really have to worry about where we are. We just speak the truth and let the chips fall where they may. That's not God's way. God is so passionate about reaching people. God is so passionate about connecting with people that God sends his message out in thousands of different ways. God is continually speaking so that people can hear. God cares deeply about the people he's trying to reach, and and so we need to care as well, okay? Where we are matters. For me, the scripture passage that makes this clear is 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 to 23. Paul's got some wonderful words here, okay? But I want to kind of set the stage a little bit for what Paul is saying. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul is talking about his Christian freedom. He's talking about, in the church, about how he's free. And, and the specific question he's asking in 1 Corinthians 8 is this. Can you eat meat offered to idols? Now, that doesn't seem like a big problem to us, because does anybody offer meat to idols anymore? But in those days, in those days basically all the butchers worked at the temple at the pagan temple, okay? So what you would do, if you wanted to get meat, you'd go to the pagan temple, and, and you'd get something, they would, somebody would offer offered it as sacrifice, and, and then you'd buy a piece of it, and, and off you'd go, and the temple would make money, both from the person making the sacrifice, and also as they sold that. So almost all the meat in Paul's day had been offered to idols. And, and there were some Christians who said, we can't touch that. We, we cannot touch that, because it's been offered to idols, and it's unclean, and it's pagan, and it's wrong. And Paul says, you know what? I am free. In Christ, those idols are nothing and I am free. And Paul says, I can eat meat whenever I want. You are free to do that unless. He says, unless it really does damage to somebody else in the church. Genuinely, somebody is hurt by it. Paul says, in that case, I'm never going to eat meat. I will not do that. Love trumps freedom. Paul, and that's what 1 Corinthians 8 is all about. Paul says, you know what? I have freedom. I have freedom to do a lot of things. But love for my neighbor, love for my brother and sister in Christ, love for them trumps my freedom, and I'm going to set aside my freedom. I'm going to give up my rights in order to care for you, in order to love you. Now, in chapter 9, he kind of continues with that same idea of giving up his rights, but this time he applies it to reaching out into the community to people who don't know Jesus Christ. And he says, you know what? I will do anything. I will do anything to connect with those people. I don't have to, but I will do it out of love. Look at what he says. Though I am free and belong to no one, right? I have freedom. I, am, I, I, I have my rights. I have made myself a slave to everyone. To win as many as possible. Paul says, I set aside my rights to do what I want because I want to win people to Christ. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I myself am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. And in these words, I have become all things. To all people, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. That is an amazing thing for Paul to say. That is an amazing thing. I have become all things. Paul says, I don't ask what I want to do. What I ask is, how do I connect with the people around me? How can I connect into their lives? How how can I build myself into that? And that is just really amazing. And I want to think about what that means kind of for us and for Paul and how that was. First thing is, we just got to let it hit us that Paul was very adaptable, right? Paul was unbelievably adaptable. Paul says, you know what? He gives us some examples. To the Jew, I became like a Jew. That's those who were under the law. To those who were under the law, Paul says, I became like that. When Paul was in a Jewish community, and when Paul would go into a city, the first thing he would do is find the synagogue. Okay, Paul would go, he'd find the synagogue, and he'd start talking to the Jewish people. And you know what Paul would do there? Is he would be like the Jews. What does that mean? Well, for one, it'd mean he'd eat kosher. Very important to the Jews of Paul's day, right? He would eat kosher, No pork. Interesting, just having been in the Middle East for two weeks, because Muslims have similar restrictions. I ate beef bacon, I ate chicken sausage, but we didn't have no pork. So Paul would have said no pork, because I don't want to offend any of these people here. I don't want to offend them, so he would not eat pork. He would eat kosher. Uh, The other thing, he'd follow the Sabbath. I'm sure. Jewish people of Paul's day, again, very specific. How many steps can you take on the Sabbath? They knew. How far can you walk? How far can you go? How much can you carry? All of these things. Paul says, when I was living with those who were under the law, who were following all those laws, Chuck, are the kids back in? Okay, all your kids are back in. Good. All right, so when I was, you know, there, I, I, I followed those things. I followed the Sabbath, and I became, I became like a Jewish person. But then Paul says to those not under the law, I came to him like, well, not under the law, and I lived completely differently. You know what that meant? When Paul went for breakfast, baby, he had bacon, okay? Man, when Paul went, he did. And when he was eating with folks who had bacon, he didn't say, oh, no, I can't touch that. He said, this is no problem. I'm free to do this. And he connected, and he said, if that makes a difference to you, I'm going to connect with you right there, all right? And and I would imagine that if a bunch of guys are going to go swimming on the Sabbath, Paul was there. Paul says I am going to do all things for all I have become all things for all people. I am going to connect with them to those not under the law. I am going to become like one of them under not under the law. I'm going to go where they are. I'm going to do what they do. That's how passionate Paul was about winning people. He was willing to set aside his own preferences. He was willing to set aside his own rights because he wanted to make a connection with people through Jesus Christ so that Jesus Christ could come to them. All right? To the weak Paul says I became weak. Don't know exactly what Paul has in mind here. It could be the weak Christians that he talked about in First Corinthians 8, those who needed a lot of laws, but that would seem similar to the, to the Jewish thing. So um, Gordon Fee is one guy who's really smart, and, and he suggests that what he's, Paul's talking about here is, is it's the sick. It's, it's slaves. It's those who are in difficult situations. Paul is saying sometimes I connect with folks you know, not by following kosher diet or not, or not by you know, swimming on the Sabbath. Sometimes I connect with folks just by sharing my story and my weakness. And Because and, and, I know that's a great connecting point. Paul was so passionate. He was so passionate about reaching people. I have become all things to all people. And the challenge for us is to, is to really just have that kind of a heart. We have to be more adaptable. We have to add more. I'm, I'm, I need to grow more adaptable. I need to grow more passionate about saying, God, help me to do whatever it takes to make that connection, help me to make my interest such that I can make connections with people in my neighborhood, with people in this community. Again, George DeYoung, one of the things he said several times while we were in the Middle East, and and it stuck with me, but he said, you know, it doesn't do us any good. It doesn't do us any good to broadcast on AM if people only listen to FM. We in the church are really good at that, aren't we? We broadcast on AM, and we send out this message of Jesus, and we're talking a lot, and we're sending out a lot of stuff, but it's all on AM, and nobody's listening to AM radio. Everybody's on FM, right? And so we've got to make sure. Two weeks, it's Pentecost. One of the things my Georgie taught me, um, you know, over and over again, is what happened on Pentecost? Everybody heard the message of Jesus in their own language, right? It's in their own language. God is passionate. God is deeply passionate about connecting with people. And so Paul was very adaptable. Now, some of you are a little nervous, and that's okay, because I think Paul wants us to be. I do want to say, we have to recognize this. well, Paul still knew and kept the core, okay? It's not that Paul would say, hey, everybody's going to the strip club, let's go to the strip club, okay? That is not what Paul is talking about, okay? Paul makes it clear that he still knew who he was. Yes, he would go a certain distance, but there was a place. There was a place where Paul said, I can't do that. I can't do that. You know, he said, I, 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 I behave as those who are under the law. When you Remember that about the Jewish people? But he also says in there, though I am not under the law, okay? Paul says, I know I'm saved by grace. It's not like when Paul was connecting with those Jewish people in those synagogues, he was saying, hey, you're fine just the way you are. You're fine just the way you are. He wanted to connect with them. He wanted to, to take up some of their patterns, wanted to take up some of their styles. But he also knew that they needed to make a change. And, and he knew that they needed to come to Jesus Christ. He would not compromise on that. And, and, and when he said, you know what? When I'm with those who are not under the law, then I behave like those who, who are not under the law. <laughs> that doesn't mean he could do whatever he wants. He says, though I am under Christ's law, right? He makes it clear that he is still called to be holy. He is still called to be holy. So Paul says, you know what? I, I held on to my core. And, and, and he reminds us that. I, I want to challenge you to think about this. There are three parts of Paul's core, okay? First was the truth of the gospel. Paul makes it clear that, that, that people needed to repent. And, and he would connect with you, and he would go to your show, and he would go to your sporting event, and, and he would, you know, go to the bar with you or whatever it was. But he would never compromise on the message of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the way and the truth and the life, and he never compromised on that, the truth of the gospel. He never compromised on the call to be like Jesus. Like I said, I mean, he would not, you know, there, there was a place where he would go, but then there was a place that he would stop, and, and he never compromised on that. Th- those two together are, are a challenge, and, and I want to just challenge you to think about this, and I'll give you an example that I ran into it um, a week and a half ago or so, a week ago Friday. Did a wedding um, for a couple um, who've been coming here, and his family especially his mom's family, uh, are are west side Polish folks. And so the rehearsal was Polish food on the west side. And let me tell you, I'd weigh 800 pounds if I ate Polish food all the time. Unbelievably good. They make these things, if you've never had them, pierogies. It's like bread or pasta and then cheese and potatoes inside, like starch. And, And then they fry it, and oh, there wasn't a vegetable in sight. The whole restaurant, I don't think, had one. But Tammy and I enjoyed it. Anyway, um, so it was, you know, it was there, and, and, and we were having a great time. And, I, and I, these, a lot of these people I didn't know didn't go to church at all. And, and the couple, the bride and the groom, had brewed beer. Now, I don't have a problem with anybody who drinks a beer or two. I don't do it very often at all. But you know what I feel most inclined to? On a night like that because it was important to me. To, so, I, you know, they, they brewed this beer, and I, they wanted me to try it. I said, absolutely. And so it was actually pretty good. But, you know, I mean, and so, but it was a great place for me to connect. Now, had, if I had eight, we'd have a problem. Right? I mean, it's okay. A beer doesn't matter. But you have eight, ten, twelve, you get drunk, that's a sin, okay? So there's a place. You can connect. You can, you know, I mean, you've got to recognize that we are still called to be holy. But it is so important to connect with people. It is so, it makes such a difference. Fascinating instance of this, again, on our trip. I mentioned before that there were about eight or ten Amish people on the trip with us. Eight or ten Amish people, and they dressed like Amish people do. The women all wore head coverings. Twice, when we were in either Jordan or Egypt... But in Muslim countries, twice I had people from those countries come up to me and say, Who are those people in your group? Those ones who are wearing the head covering, the women who are in the dresses, who are body. Because they were dressed like, not like Muslims, but they were dressed in a way that was very modest. They were dressed in a way their heads were covered and so on. And for these Muslims, it was like, Now I'd like to talk to her. I'd like to hear from her. And I thought, You know who can win the, 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 the Middle East? It's the Amish. I think they would be the most effective missionaries. Because they, I mean, right, and and I think, you know, if you're there, and and we did this when we were there, I mean, I didn't wear the the robes, but you you respect it and you connect and you say, look, I'm going to listen. But these Amish people, for them, it was just fascinating. I mean, they have, you know, actually the first thing that those two people came up to me and said, you know, are you Brad Pitt? And I said, no. But then they would say, you know, (laughs) I mean, they had me, and they were interested in these Amish people but that's true, right? I mean, because they had a connecting point. They saw these people and they said, there's something about them that I can relate to. They have a, a sense of modesty. That's not like most American Christians. And I want to hear more from them. And I thought, wow. I would come all things to all people, so that by all means. And so we have that, the truth of the gospel, the, the, the call to be like Jesus. And then the third thing, it, it, the, the, being true to his gifts, Okay. The Apostle Paul, was that was part of his core that he never let go of, okay? He was always true to his gifts. He was true to who he was. He was a church planter. Now, that's not to say, say, well, my neighbor would need somebody like this, and that's not my gift, so I don't have to worry about it. No, we do our best when we are in a situation to use that, all right? So... Paul was very, very adaptable. He was willing to reach out and make those connections. He still kept his core. And then the third thing, which Paul doesn't say explicitly, but is just logically true, and I want to make a point out of it. But, but Paul couldn't be all things to all people at the same time. Okay? You can't eat kosher and not kosher at the same meal. Okay, you can't keep Sabbath and not keep Sabbath on the same Sabbath. Okay? And, and the reason I mention it is that sometimes we in the church kind of pick up on Paul saying all things to all people and we think we do that all the time. You know, I mean, I, We think we do that at, at the same time with everybody and we just kind of end up doing nothing. And so as we think about what call, God is calling us to do, it still fits into who we are and, 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 and we can't do everything. There are other churches, praise God, in this community that tell about Jesus Christ, a lot of them in this area. And, and, and so we don't have to be everything all the time to everybody. We've got to decide who we are, what we can do, and what's out there, the, the places we can meet. Haddon Robinson uh, kind of sums up 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23 this way. He says, We are called to do all that we can, short of sinning, to reach people for Jesus Christ. We are called to do all. All that we can short of sinning to reach people for Jesus Christ. All right. So that's what I wanted to start with. The Bible makes clear that that where we are matters. So what I want to do now is take a little bit of time and think about, well, where are we? Okay? What is this community like? What is around us? In your individual neighborhoods. I want to give you I'm going to give you three things to think about. I want to challenge you to think about those three things, but also for us as a church. What are the people around us are like? What are, what are they like? Again, I think of my, my Amish friends who connected with the Muslims in the Middle East by the way they dressed. What about us? What are people like us uh, around us like? Uh, three things, three areas of needs that I want us to think about. All right? First of all, what are the spiritual needs of our community? What, what do people believe? Where, where are people? What's their relationship with Jesus Christ? Are they antagonistic toward it? Are they aware of it? Were they raised in it? Did they leave the church, those who aren't going to church? Are they, are they angry? Are, what's going on? What about the people around us? I think it would be great if you could all know that for your neighbors. To say, you know, this person in this house, you know, they're just ripe. They are not far from the kingdom of God. This person in this house, boy, they are just angry at anything that sounds Christian. They've been really hurt by the church. And, and we've got to know those things. But also in our broader community. In our broader community, what, what, what's going on there? I'll give you a couple of things that can kind of help us with that. And, and again, I'm just going to throw some stuff out here, and, and it's way more than you can take in. But just to give you an idea of some of the options that are out there. One of the, the places where we learn some things is called the Barna Group. George Barna is a guy who's been doing surveys about religious matters for 25 or 30 years now. And again, surveys are always kind of, you've got to take them with a lot of grain of salt. I know that. But they can give us a snapshot, a picture of, of some of what's going on. Give you just, if you go to his website, one of his most recent ones was talking about how post-Christian is the United States. And, and this was focused on the United States. But, uh, you know, our, our neighbors who don't go to church, are they kind of close? Are they, are they do they still have kind of Christian practices? Um, or, or are they getting further and further away? And, and this study ended up saying, you know what, there's a trend. They're, they're getting further away. Let me just kind of show you what they, they did. They, they made some metrics. They measured 15 things. Okay, and kind of said, you know, how often do you do this? I don't know how many people they polled or whatever, but they're a legitimate org- organization. They, they do these things pretty well. The first number was 4%. They do not believe in God, just when asked, 4%. And on the other hand, it's interesting to me, 96% then said some sort of, okay, there's something out there. We are not just alone. The next number is, uh, well, hold on. Let me, it's just the 8% there, the next one across. Um, that's those who say, well, we, we, we don't believe in God or we say we just can't know God. Those two categories together, what we call agnostic and, and atheist. So those, that's the 8%. Um, again, it's, it's 33% have not attended church in a year. On the other hand, I was kind of surprised 67% perhaps did. I mean, that was kind of interesting to me to say, okay, people, so, so that says, okay, we, 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 get, we get opportunities. We have, we have connections. People are not, you know, a good number of them are not so down on it yet. Um, 57% there have not read the Bible in a week. okay. And, and, and again, you say, well, how do you interpret that and so on? But what they do is they put all this together and they kind of say, well, how post-Christian are we? And they say that 37% are either highly or moderately post-Christian. So there is a gap that's growing there, okay? And they say 10% are, are highly non-Christian. And, and those are people who are not just, not, it's not just kind of antagonistic, but it's just they don't even think about Christianity. Any Christian practices, they just don't connect with them at all. And so we've got to be thinking about saying, well, how do we connect with those folks, what does it mean? Are they around here? How do, we, how do we minister to them? How do we connect them? Overall, one of the interesting things they said is that younger generations are increasingly post-Christian. OK? So we got here on the lower right, seniors, 67 uh, years and older, 28 uh, percent. Only 28 percent of them fall into the, the moderate or highly uh, uh, non-post-Christian category. For the boomers, 48 to 66. Um, that's 35%, okay? So it kind of goes up there. For the busters, 29 to 47%, that's 40%, okay? So we're kind of going, again, we've got 28%, 35 40%. And then when we get to the mosaics, those are 18 to 28-year-olds, it's all the way up to 48%. Now, again, we don't know if those mosaics, as they become older, if they're going to pick up more of this stuff. But again, it's a challenge. So those who are dealing with college students need to kind of be aware of this. And, and, and again, I'm not going to... I show you this just to say, friends... Go ahead and go to their website. Go ahead and listen. Read books. Find out. We need to know where we are. If we are going to become all things to all people, we need to know what all people are. All right? We need to just kind of be aware of this. Another resource we have called the Executive Insight. And this is a a group that will give you specific areas. Daniel's got several of these around here. Um, I just pick up some numbers from the one that's, if you take Eastern Avenue on that side, Kalamazoo Avenue, 68th Street down to 76th Street. So Crystal Springs, the immediate area around here, okay? So if you, if you pull those people, and this comes from uh, data from the... Um, when they count everybody. Census. That's the thing I'm thinking of, the census. Uh, and, and some other questions they ask. Anyway, but in that area, 43.2 people consider themselves, or percent of the people consider themselves conservative evangelical Christians. That's above the national average. Okay, so that, that tells us something that, that that's there. Interestingly, 43.3% consider themselves spiritual. That's actually below the national average. Now, one of the questions is, how do those numbers overlap? And, and that's where we've got to do a little more checking and so on. But, uh, again, that's why you take it all with some salt. Um, 20.1%, I was surprised this was low, and this is lower than the national average. But in this square mile, only 20.1% say attending religious services is important. That's why summer is so empty. Sorry. Um, Sorry. <laughs> especially if it's 80 degrees out, right? Um, 13.3% say faith is really important to them. I was surprised that was low. That's below the national average. So it's interesting to say, okay, what does that mean? How does that impact what we do? As we look at who we are, and as we look at who's around us, what do we do with that? And so again, I'm not, but, but, but this is what we're going to be doing together and ask you to do this. Say, God, who's here? What, where are we? And, and, and let me just say, you know, There are times when we can look at it and we say, well, I don't like this culture. This culture asks silly questions. There's a good portion of this culture that I think does. Drives me nuts. But you know what? This is the culture we are. It's not 1950. It's 2013. And and, and we're not in other places. We're in this one. And we may find people already, but these are the people God is calling us to reach. And so we need to keep asking ourselves, where are we? Now, kind of in that sense of spiritual we actually have something that we're going to be doing in the next few months, few weeks and months, um, that, that we've been praying about. And we asked you to pray about it. There was a, a slide at the beginning of the service. There's an organization called Project Philip. And, and what they've done is they've recognized that in the United States, there is that increasing percentage of people who are not Christians. Uh, most places, it's at least 50%, and that kind of holds true around here. And, and so when we, think about, when we think about evangelism and outreach and missions, it's not just going to other countries. It's, it's right here. It's our neighbors. And, and so what Project Philip did is said, let's, let's look at that. Let's recognize that there's a fair amount of fear in our communities. There's a fair amount of challenge and, and fear. Think about terrorism and things like that. So they put together a little booklet, Freedom from Fear. And what we're going to do in the next few weeks is we're going to mail out 13,000 of these to the 49548 area code, uh, zip code rather, 13,000 of these. That's how many people live in that zip code. Now some of you are immediately going to say, how many of those are just going to get thrown away? And I'll tell you the answer, a lot. But you know, Jesus in that parable of the sower, he said, you know what, the sower just throws the seed and he knows some places are just not going to receive it very well. He knows that some places are just not going to accept it very well. And, and, and we know that. Some people aren't going to. But this is kind of a pilot thing for us and for Project Philip to say, how many are going to respond? Is this something that we might be able to establish connections? And we'll send them these, and, and there's being a letter um, that will be signed by somebody, maybe by you, but a letter just, you know, and then directing them to the church and so on. And we'll see how many connections we can make. But it's kind of saying, you know, there's some fear in this community that we want to try to deal with and help people experience the, the peace that comes from knowing Jesus Christ. Next week, Sunday, you'll have an opportunity to take some of these home. and We need some help stuffing envelopes. So if you want to be a part of it, that's kind of a cool thing you can do with a family, a care circle or whatever. But we'll tell you more about that next week. So that's, that's Project Phillip. So what are the spiritual needs? Obviously, we start there. Second, what about emotional relational needs? What, what are those needs in our community? I mean, the Bible tells us to, to open up our homes and to care about people and to reach out. And, and, and again, 13 years ago, a fascinating book was written called Bowling Alone, Robert Putnam. Some of you may have read it. It came out in the year 2000. But, but he uses the image of bowling. And he says, people don't bowl in leagues as much as now. They just bowl alone because there's not as much community. There's not as much connection. There's not as many relationships. And people are hungry for those. And so how do we create community? Is that a place that God is calling us to serve? Is that something God is calling us to do? I was talking not too long ago with some folks from the church who had struggled with miscarriage and gone through that. And how many people in this area, in that square mile, I wonder how many have gone through that and are just struggling and could use, is that a place? I mean, that's where I say, what are the needs out there? What are the needs out there? And and which ones is God calling us to do? So the, the emotional, relational needs and then, the last one, the physical needs. What are the physical needs in our community? Again, we said at the beginning, two weeks ago, we said, you know, God is making all things new. And, 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 and so part of that is, is feeding hungry people. It's working through places like Streams of Hope and, and the food pantry that's there. Part of it is just connecting with, 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 with people and, and helping them who are in difficult situations. Uh, some of our, our, pa- our uh, deacons and our service leaders came across a ministry a number of months ago that they are very excited about. It's called Safe Families. And, and what it is is it's a ministry to, to families that are struggling. And uh, maybe they've lost their home or whatever, but there are kids in the family. And, and uh, they, they, it's not bad enough for the state yet to step in, and they'd like to keep it from getting there. Um, I mean, foster care does uh, some good things, but, but you want to keep it from getting there. And so what churches have done and have said, you know what, can we open up our homes can we have some of these kids live with us just to let mom and dad catch their breath? Just to let mom and dad, or, or mom if it's a single mom or dad, if it's a single dad or whatever, just to let them catch their breath? And can we just love on these kids and love on the mom or the dad and, 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 then, and then get them to a place where they can be back in, intact? And so I want to just show you a little video of, of, uh, of what goes on with this ministry.
1: and an accountant lost their jobs, their home, and struggled with health problems. This is when we, Mom, Isabel, and I, were sitting in the metro union station. And then a police woman came by and saw Isabel's swollen feet that were covered with spots and bleeding. And she got them from walking around so much, and her shoes were too small, too. That was when you were living on the streets? Yes. That's a nice picture, but that's a tough story, isn't it? Yes. With parents no longer able to care for them, they might have ended up in the child welfare system. But in Chicago and seven other cities, there's another safety net, an alternative to foster care for some. Can I interrupt and give you some information on Safe Families? It's called Safe Families, a network of volunteers who will take in children from overwhelmed parents temporarily. (laughs) Anywhere from a few days to in some cases, more than a year. There's a whole group of families that if you can help them out before things get really bad, you can really make a big difference in their life. We kind of call it co-parenting. Dr. There's David Anderson says it's helped more than a thousand children in Chicago doctor since doctor he came up with the idea we'll five say, years ago. A couple moms said, you know, can you just can you just take them from me until I can get back on my feet. Yes, that's good. In the last year, requests for help have doubled. Is a house for the fishies? Nine months ago, Cassie and Toby Ng opened their home to Lori and Isabel. You get attached so fast,
2: and you want the best for them. Um, at the same time, you hope and pray that their original family can be reconciled. Some child
1: advocates criticize the program and say more should be done to keep families intact. <laughs> I love you. Love you. Bye. But this desperate mom believed it was the best option. That's the one thing that I strive to be is a good mom. Twenty-eight-year-old Chanel Bryant was about to put five-year-old Jessica and two-year-old Ethan up for adoption after she was diagnosed with cancer, lost her job, and then her apartment.
2: It just made me want to give up. I felt as though I didn't even deserve to live because of my, you know, I was unable to take care of my kids.
1: That's when she was referred to the Safe Families program, but the thought of giving up her children was agonizing.
2: I cried all last night. Honestly, I did. This is Bosco. We
1: were there when the children were welcomed into the Applegate home.
2: And you get to sleep in this big bed. with Everybody says, oh, this is so good of you to do. And in a way, I feel like I'm selfish because I get so much more out of it. They're a Christian family, and they're really nice. The families
1: of Trevon, Malik, and Hector all made that same difficult choice.
2: And all of a sudden, my mom was crying, and she said that she had found a family for me. And
1: Is that hard for you?
2: Yes. It was really hard trying to say goodbye to my mom.
1: Is it a little bit confusing to live with a new family and not with your moms? Mm-hmm, yeah. Do you think it's better to be with this new family for now, anyway? Yes, I do, because they they help me a lot. And it's helping my mom, too. It's not just helping me. It's helping her, too. father, thanks for a good time. Volunteer families stepping in during tough times is reminiscent of the Great Depression, when parents in dire straits sent their children to live with relatives or other people in the community. Charlene Davis was four years old when she became one of those economic orphans.
2: It's a wonderful thing to have somebody who takes you into their home. How do you tell them that they love you?
1: The Applegates did that for Jessica and Ethan. Leaving their mom free to look for work. And Safe Families also helped with their job search. After two weeks, success.
0: Okay, I, that, that there was more, but that's what God gave us. So, um, here, let's, if I, I don't, can you just black this out for now, Peter, while Kenyatta's coming up? Uh, in our area, uh, Bethany uh, Christian Services is is, is uh, directing this program, and, and we became aware of it because one of the families from our church was blessed by it and, and just received some help, and it was just exactly what they needed, and our deacons and service leaders said, we ought to make sure people are aware of this. So, Kenyatta, can you?
2: And so thank you to you and to the deacons and service leaders who've invited Bethany Christian Services to worship with you. We have thoroughly enjoyed ourselves. Uh, One thing about Safe Families is that it really is a ministry of the church and a ministry of community, as you were talking about in your sermon. So I think why Jesus was so popular in the Bible was that he was not afraid to walk with people when life happened, because life happens to us all, and he was not afraid to get down and dirty with it. (laughs) And so this is a wonderful ministry opportunity we do have uh people with personal testimonies who will be outside with my colleague jesse and i will be at that table you saw when you first came in and so come and ask these families some questions of how they get started where they go and how did it affect them and uh we're just here to answer questions for you i have chocolate to bribe your kids so that when they come to the table you can come right along with them so look forward to seeing you out there thanks kenyatta Thank you.
0: Yeah, it's just, again, we were looking at it and just saying there's a need here. Is this something God is calling us to fit? And so, um, yeah, it's an opportunity that uh, you'll have an opportunity to know more about. And it's not just taking the kids into your home, if that's what you can do. There's also, I think, support for moms and others who are in need. And so if you're interested in that, you can find out about it. So let's go ahead and just in closing here, I I, want to just ask you to pray. Um, Thanks, Peter. You know, we started the first week and said, would you just pray that we can see what God is doing? And then last week, can you pray to see who we are? This week, I just ask you to pray and, and, and ask God that we can have the eyes to see where we are and then the courage to be all things to all people. There is nothing better than being where God wants us, when God wants us, how God wants us. And so we're seeking to do that. And so I just invite you to join me in seeking God's face now and in the weeks and the months to ha- ahead. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we come to you and we thank you for uh, this opportunity to just be together and to think about our neighbors, many of whom don't know you. And so, Father, give us eyes to see, eyes to see who they are so that we can become enough like them or connect with them in such a way that that they can know you. Uh, We don't want to become like them at our core because we want to belong to you. Lord, help us to, to, to know them so that we can connect with them so that Jesus might live in them as well. So give us that passion, give us that desire, and give us those eyes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We please stand to receive God's parting word of blessing? Once again, following our service, there are going to be some folks in the prayer room if you'd like to talk with somebody or pray with somebody. People of God, as we go from this place, know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ goes with each and every one of us, and may we have eyes to see the people around us who need Jesus' love. Go in God's grace. Amen.